Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Where's This Going? I'm Felix Levine, and today I'm very excited to announce that this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Wellness Meats. U.S. Wellness Meats is a company that provides grass-fed and grass-finished products where the owners are the farmers themselves. All of U.S. Wellness Meats, beef, lamb, bison, and dairy products are 100% grass-fed and grass-finished finished. They also offer pasture-raised heritage pork, free-range poultry, and wild-caught seafood as well. They specialize in a variety of special diets and have hundreds of paleo, keto, Whole30, sugar-free, and AIP-friendly options for everybody. U.S. Wellness Meats has over 400 all-natural whole foods in their online store, uswellnessmeats.com. All of their foods are raised on family farms, dedicated to sustainable and ethical principles. They do not use any pesticides, herbicides, antibiotics, growth hormones, or GMOs. They supply nutrient-dense, all-natural foods to professional football and baseball teams, colleges, individual athletes at the highest levels of every sport, health professionals, respected gourmet chefs, fine dining establishments, and families all over the country in every single state as well as Canada and Puerto Rico, and just people who are simply looking for the best food and best quality on the planet. U.S. Wellness Meats ships anywhere in the country for only $9.50 for shipping and handling, and most orders are delivered within 24 to 48 hours of leaving their facilities. Go get your meat or your seafood. Depends what you want. Use promo code PODCAST, that's P-O-D-C-A-S-T, for 15% off store-wide savings at uswellnessmeats.com. Go get it, people. And today, I am very excited to be sitting down, or actually calling, a multiple-time New York Times best-selling author, and journalist, as well as the special advisor to the Cleveland Indians, Mr. Daniel Coyle. Mr. Coyle has written books on Lance Armstrong back in 2005, where he shadowed Mr. Armstrong across Tour de France, spent some time with him, talked to his teammates and others, and then in 2012 wrote, co-authored a book with Mr. Tyler Hamilton, who was Lance Armstrong's right-hand man that goes 100% in-depth on the doping, on what it was like being part of the Armstrong team. And he's also written a book called The Talent Code in 2009 that talks about how greatness is not born, it is grown. He then in 2018 published The Culture Code that dives into some of the world's most successful organizations such as Pixar or the San Antonio Spurs or the Navy Seals or massive company like Zappos and researched exactly what made them tick, what made them better. And he talks it's, – it's, it's a book that dives into the psychological domain, the communication domain of these high-performing companies or teams that are truly at the base of them just – ordinary people working together and I have the great honor of having him on the show so let's get it rolling
we're live. So, Daniel, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Felix. Let's get right into it. Um, did you imagine, did you know growing up that you would become a, a journalist and then a New York Times bestselling author on multiple occasions and then one day the special advisor to the Cleveland Indians? How does that sound I, when I say that? I knew it all. I had a vision as a four-year-old. Um, <laughs> no, I actually, it's, 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 I, uh, I, I did not, um, and uh, I, I definitely I had a, a pretty a pretty different <clears throat> vision of, of just becoming a doctor like my dad, like my grandfather, and um, just kind of working in the hospital. I guess that was as close as I ever got to thinking about the future to the extent that I ever did think, and which wasn't very often. Um, but uh, yeah, no, just 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 kind of things. One thing one thing leads to another. And how did you first kind of get into journalism and then, I guess, kind of your first writing works? Yeah, I was all set. To, like I said, I went to college. I was all set to be a doctor. Um, took the MCATs, you know, majored in pre-med, also majored in English. So I always had that too. But it was mostly just English at that time was just kind of a, I don't know, hobby. Um, but as I got closer and closer to medical school, um, I, I took some time off. And that's just a hard, it's just a hard decision. You know, my kids are now that age and they're, they're kind of facing that same landscape and it's just an incredibly hard thing to get through. And, um, one thing that helped me get through is just taking some time away from everything. I went traveling by myself, um, just ended up in a, in a little, uh, a little village called Windermere in England. And I was walking along on some super cloudy classic night and, there's, I had this funny thing happen that I have, I have, uh, you know, I, I think about when I think about that moment, that choosing careers. An old man ahead of me walking on the road, and I remember having the thought like, "Ooh, I, did, I, I don't want to be an old man and like, you know, just kind of go down just the boring, you know, predictable um, path of being a doctor." So um, that that kind of led me into, "Oh, I should, I'm gonna, I'm gonna test out this journalism thing." And when I, you know, when I think about you know, the reason I love that is the most exciting time in my, in my life was when Sports Illustrated came in my mailbox every Friday afternoon. And I got to read these amazing stories about sports. And, and at some point it occurred to me that there are people that write those stories and that's an actual job that you get, you can get paid for it. I sort of go and attend games and, and write up what happened and talk and, and build profiles of, of great and interesting people and, and explore mysteries. Um, and, and so that's, that's kind of, you know, I took this, took this real light left turn into journalism that, uh, that landed me, um, you know, right after I got out of college, took a job at the uh, Anchorage times local newspaper. I grew up in Alaska and, um, and worked there and kind of, that's where I got my first exposure to that life of sort of, okay, go out and find something, capture it, put it down on the page, um, and, and put it out there for people to read. I think it's kind of interesting also that you talk about uh, you didn't want to go into that boring path, as you kind of mentioned earlier, of or not boring, but kind of maybe more conventional path of, you know, you go to med school, you become a doctor and that's your life. Um, and I think that is kind of seen in a lot of your work with greatness and talent and kind of being around. I mean, a lot of your work is around some of the most prolific, famed, controversial, you know, people ever. And so did you, do you feel like you have this passion or this great interest in 
greatness? And what is, when I say the word greatness, what kind of comes to your mind first? Yeah, I, I think I, I think I do. I've always I've always been kind of obsessed. I think like a lot. I don't think it's a unique obsession to sort of say like, "Wow, what's that made of?" When you see a Michael Jordan jump shot or an Einstein equation, and just go like, "Damn, that's cool!" And um, feeling that sort of vibration um, when you're around it, and then wanting to sort of figure out what's what's that made of. Um, and and so you know that was kind of a thread of of just life in general. Um, I grew up with a couple of brothers and we competed a lot of different things. Um, and so figuring out how to be slightly better than I was yesterday was always an important part of life. Um, whether that was on the sports field or the classroom or whatever. And, and realizing early on that there, there was like, there, there was a strong, it's funny, the world has changed a bit in the last 10 years. Um, but you know, growing up, there was, there was this really strong sort of story narrative around greatness that it really was genetic that like, that was it, man. Jordan's different. Einstein's different. Dan Marino's different. They just got something that you don't have. And I guess part of me always, you know, just rebelled against that because I I didn't believe it. I had seen, you know, people I knew who had been bad at stuff become really, really, really good. And I myself had gotten like been bad at stuff and then become really, really good. So the idea of there being um, maybe a different story to tell or a story around greatness that wasn't being told was really interesting to me. Um, And I think as a, as a, the most exciting thing as a cre, you know, as a so-called creative person, um, I think, you know, it's hard to be a creative person. I think one of the reasons it's hard is that there's a there's sort of an, an instinct to kind of look inside yourself to find something new that's never been said. And early on in, in you know, I bumped into the work of, you know, like Tom Wolfe and then writing the right stuff. If anybody's ever read that, it's, you know, it's a, it's a book about the, the space program. It's a book about astronauts. Um, but in it, he, he does this incredible deep dive on, on this, the amazing process of what, what was behind the scenes um, as, as these men got selected and chosen and trained to, to go to the moon, to go in orbit. And um, that model of like, oh, wait a minute, um, we don't have to kind of just sort of sit back and accept um, you know, these, these stories of greatness that are, that are given to us. There's actually a machinery behind the scenes and there's incredibly crazy stories that are just behind the scenes, kind of these mysteries right in front of our noses um, to explore. And I guess that always informed me too, this idea that um, the answer wasn't inside of me, but if I could you know, get a notebook and access um, that you would have permission as a journalist to kind of explore the world underneath greatness and then come to understand it on a, the scientific dimension of it, the social dimension of it, the crazy dimension of it, because it's not normal to be great. I mean, that's sort of the first thing that you discover when you go hang out with people who are at the top of the pyramid of their, of their profession or their sport. Like they're not normal. They're really weird in interesting ways. And, um, and so the idea of kind of linking the tips of those pyramids into and seeing what patterns exist at the tip and, and seeing what kinds of people are there and seeing what kinds of universal processes brought them there. I mean, to me, it's just endlessly, endlessly interesting. And there's one, so that kind of basically is more or less, I would imagine your motivation for the talent code. Yeah, that's fair to say for sure. Yeah. What, what, what's going on in those places, right? Right. And so for people that may not be familiar yet with the talent code, um, I guess to 
sum it up shortly, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's basically that greatness is not born, it's grown. And one kind of aspect that I really like just in reading a few excerpts um, is when you talk about that small tennis club in Russia that's produced more than 20 or more top 20 players than the entire United States. And the Mm -hmm. same way that they use the same strategies as a classical music academy in upstate New York that's produced some of the highest talents like Yo-Yo Ma and others, and how those places, although geographically very different, you know, location-wise, but also culturally, have a lot of the same kind of methodologies and strategies. And one of those that you kind of go into is they both talk about the emphasis on slowing down those initial movements. And Mm -hmm. I kind of was wondering with you, what is it about slowing down a movement, whether it's a tennis swing, uh, you know, a forehand or a backhand, or while playing music, what is it about slowing it down that you think has such great impact on the success of the student? Yeah, it's super interesting. There's a lot of science to demonstrate why this works, but in, in a single word, it's precision. You know, if you can... You know, it's easy to do something quick and sloppy, but if you can play a song, when you go and you slow down, when you play the finger on your violin or your or your or even as you as you move your tennis racket, if you can do that perfectly very slowly, it lets you tune in to the motion in different ways. It gives you a sense of precision, and also that can also happen with speeding up too. By the way, it's not just slowing down; it's introducing any kind of constraint. And the act of going of self-organizing to go around that constraint builds skill. It, 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 it's it's earning the skill. And so that was one of the fun things about that book was to go in to these places that look on the outside quote magic, and then underneath look at this common machinery that they share. Because learning is learning is learning. I mean, when you we talk about muscle memory, but you know, your muscle doesn't have any memory. It executes what the circuits of your brain tell it to do. So basically, it's a circuitry building contest. That's what all these talent hotbeds are, and that's what all schools are. They're circuitry building contests. So, how do you build those circuitries? Well, circuitry is built according to certain principles, and one of those is that principle of constraint. When you put a constraint on a skill. Um, to, to sort of limit it in some way, to limit the expression of it in some way, it helps you get better. Um, we self-organize to get around it, and we build that circuitry in a stronger and stronger way. So as they say at the Music Academy, um, it's, it's not it's, – and actually, as a, as a famous football uh, coach used to say, like, you know, uh, what, what was it? It's like smooth um, – slow is smooth and smooth is fast. Mm. That's how they would say it. Like, like be smooth because that smoothness that you create actually will give you speed later. Um, so it, it's, it's, it was one of the fun parts of that book was getting a point of view and, and kind of creating a common platform and a common language and a common scientific language really for, for coaches and participants of all these different domains to come together and talk. I remember giving a talk to the, U.S. Olympic coaches, and there was a clarinet professor who was in the room. And pretty soon the clarinet professor is having a talk with, with Michael Phelps' swim coach about like practice technique, which is really cool to think about. But mm. you're doing the same thing. If you're trying to train the breaststroke, you're trying to train somebody to play clarinet, you're, you're in the circuitry building business. So why not learn from each other? And what is your kind of research process? I mean, uh, at least let's start with the talent code. How does that kind of come about and what's kind of that turning point of 
this is an idea for a book into, okay, I'm going to actually go out and do it. And then once you are set on, I'm going to write this book and I'm going to do this research, what is kind of your research process in reaching out to people? I mean, you know, in the outskirts of a small Russian tennis club or in upstate New York, what are those conversations like and how do you decide on which places you're going to go to? You know, coming up as, you know, is to, to take a pretty typical journalistic approach, you know, and you can, you can sort of think of it as, as phases. Phase one is kind of the more discovery phase where you're, you're poking around in the jungle looking for a really big mystery to solve. Um, you're not looking for an answer. You're not looking for like an answer to deliver to people. You're looking for like, what's the biggest mystery that would impact the most people that is the most interesting that it, that where there is some some interesting research where there is some 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 new things happening some area some rich area to explore and um, you know in the case and each book kind of leads to the next one in, in certain ways um, you get to the end of talent you end up in groups um, but getting through that discovery phase kind of deciding okay this is a rich area and then you sort of test out a few things and a good way to test things is to do a magazine article about it um, because it it forces you to become concrete it forces you to start building the pieces when you're building a book it's not unlike building a house you know you need to have a solid foundation that's built on the kind of rich ground that i just described and you need to have the pillars and pieces the pillars of science um, the pillars of case studies, uh, the pillars of exposition to connect it all together. So you start assembling that stuff. And a magazine article is a great way to do it in miniature. It forces you to say, all right, what's the one place you would visit? What's the 10 scientists you'd talk to? And that gets you in there. And then you get in this kind of more iterative phase where you're continually building your outline continually refreshing that outline based on what you find. Um, you'll find, you'll be surprised when you get out there. You'll, you'll have to, you'll realize that some of your first, um, hypotheses were not correct. Um, you'll meet scientists that blow your mind and send you in a different way. You go to a case study that does the same, but you kind of keep iterating in this area and keep refreshing your outline. And there's sort of, in every book, there's like, um, you know, a couple of pages that you're continually rewriting. This is chapter one. No, no, no. This is chapter one. No, no, no. This is chapter one. Mm. Um, and probably one of the, you know, one of the most important moments is figuring out what the, what the title is. I think a lot of people who are not into, um, this type of work <clears throat> kind of underrate the importance of the title. But, um, I think to me, and this probably would apply to any sort of creative work in my mind, like, deciding what something is called is should happen at the beginning. Mm. Uh, and the idea that it should happen at the end is like a capstone is, is I think is deeply inaccurate um, because that title will kind of guide you. It'll, it'll help determine what you're super interested in and what you're less interested in. So um, that process of kind of, you know, the, the, the discovery, the test drive and then the continual, very slow iteration I mean, you know, the talent code took five years. I think culture code took five years. It's, uh, these are not fast processes. Um, and, and then you're, you know, and then you get into the more sort of block and tackle stuff of sending it to the editor and, and, and beginning the, uh, the more, more conventional process of publishing. How many pages or how much work that and research did you do that is not included? Oh my God. I mean, the typical sort of, you know, when you do a rule of thumb thing, it's probably 90, 10, meaning 10 gets in. Um, 
and it's it's hard to it's hard to measure, you know. Um, but you know, if I were to, you know, I guess one sim- one simple way to do it would be the sort of case study files of case studies that I looked into and chose not to do, um, and that would probably be around the 90-10, 90-10 margin. Finding the right story is really hard. You know, finding the right the right stuff is is uh, it, it's. It definitely rewards um, OCD type behavior. <laughs> how do you des- how do you decide what is the right story? It's got to contain. Um, it's it's got to resonate with. Uh, it's got to d- achieve the goal that the structure of the book is trying to achieve. Um, it's got to. F- it's like picking. It's like building a, in a menu. Like there's a lot of different ways to do it right, but if you are going to serve. Um, you know, asparagus, uh, with your appetizer, you're probably not going to serve, um, you know, a, a dish of broccoli and Brussels sprouts with the next course because they're too much like asparagus. So you're trying to even out the tastes, the appearances, the, the feel of each of these things. And for me, I, I feel fortunate because in, in, in my approach, I'm drawing from the worlds of science, the worlds of sport, the worlds of art, the worlds of politics, um, the worlds of, of whatever. So military. So I, I feel like I need to balance, um, create a balanced experience for the reader that is rich and surprising. I think the main thing that I try for in each of those things is what would be a good question to ask is what would be the most surprising turn for the book to take right now? What would be, you know, in each of these chapters, they don't stand alone. I mean, they're all, they're all connected. So we just finished in world war and we're in the world war two trenches. What would be the most interesting place to go? Maybe Silicon Valley, you know, like jump from there to there. That's a cool jump. So you kind of think cinematically, like what is going to be a cool, um, a cool experience for the reader. And, and, and also what is the next question you're trying to answer? You know, it's just every good book is, is sort of a series of, of questions that hopefully if it's done well, um, get deeper and, and are, and, and get more urgent um, and get bigger and continue to kind of, you know, you're building a mental model with a book. So, um, you've, you've got, you can't just, you know, the book, the sin that I think a lot of books fall into, maybe podcasts too, they just kind of, they, they get on one question and they beat it to death and they don't, um, link to the next question and, and always with the audience in mind of what, what's the audience struggling with? What do they, what do they care about? What, mm-hmm. what do they, what's going to resonate with them? Um, so that's, I guess that's been one realization I've had over the years. I think I started out as a writer saying, Oh, it's all about me. I've got all these experiences and ideas and I'm, I'm smart and I can deliver those in a way that people find. And the truth is nobody cares. Um, it's not unpleasant truth, but it is a truth. Nobody really cares about how smart I am. Nobody really cares (laughs) what you are. Nobody cares about what they care about are the things they struggle with every day. And the things people struggle with every day are like, Geez, you know, as a as a parent, how do I help my kids succeed? How do I do better in in my job? Uh, how do I how do I you know build a culture at work that's better? How do I be more creative? How do I be more innovative? Like, so finding out what those questions are, and then using you know building bridges from your content to those questions is 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 a meaningful act, um, and it's it's it, and that is more an act of listening and observation than it is an act of you know, genius or creativity. It's not, again, it's not about what the artist has to say. It's about what, what the audience is struggling with. 
Right. And what I, that's actually a pretty good segue because I, what I really liked about, I mean, I'm about halfway done through the culture code and all the other excerpts that I've read, but a lot of your work is in my eyes, in my interpretation is a very amazing way of simplifying human psychology and things that I've noticed or maybe haven't noticed and kind of seeing that even in these big, you know, Silicon Valley companies, they're using or they're maybe not using super simple strategies of communicating that just when dumbed down are very basic at a human level. And I think what's kind of beautiful of the work that you do and some of the the science that you incorporate is, you know, when you say between a, a table that's eight meters away and 50 meters away, there's, it's, it's a world of difference. The communication is different. And when communication is different, productivity is different. And when you have, ta- and when you have teams where one team is on one floor and one team is on the other, it's just as good as being in a different country. And so that stuff, what you get in the book for listeners that haven't read the book and I hope do, is you get a really great sense of not only human psychology, but a way of interacting with people that kind of maybe has never been well explained. And I think what I'm also kind of wondering when you're doing all this work is how how do you how does this all this psychological work and data and science kind of translate into your interactions with friends, family, how you interact with your kids as a father? Are these ideas of being safe and being vulnerable and being honest, are those easily translatable into your maybe life at home, into your personal life? And how does that kind of, how does that shape the person that you are? Yeah, no, you you can't help but kind of be a, a, when when you do this, when you do this kind of research uh, where you're looking at people who are, you know, great leaders or communicators or whatever. And and you, it's like, you know, it's like spending time in a, in a, in a restaurant where everyone's a really good cook or everyone's a really great waiter. It's like, you can't help but bring some of that, uh, some of that back. And, you know, that definitely, you know, it definitely happened, happened with me and it continues to happen. It's part of the privilege of being a journalist, I guess, to be able to expose to these things. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I, once you realize, once you see, um, the power of, for example, you know, admitting you screwed up as a, as a leader where you say, you know, I grew up thinking eh, that's probably a bad thing to do. I would never do that. But then um, you meet the Navy SEAL commander who says the four most important words a leader can say are, I screwed that up. And it's because it gives people permission to tell the truth and it, it creates cohesion and trust. And that, that was a huge realization for me. I, I didn't think about it in that way. Um, but I think it's scientifically true. And I think it's, it's kind of practically true. Mm. I see that on, you know, in the business world and the, and the, in the sports world, the military world all the time. And once you kind of have your eyes open to it, you can't close your eyes to it again. So, um, it definitely, it definitely uh, affects the way I did a little experiment when I was writing the book. I, was coaching a team of middle school uh, writers. There's a there's an event uh, here where I live in Ohio where they have a, a writing competition, and I coach the middle school team at the local school where my kids go. And um, I coached it for several years, and I did it one way. I did it the way I had always done it, where I was kind of the authority and delivered the knowledge I knew, and you know was kind of evaluative on their work. Um, and after spending time steeped in the in you know the research for the for the culture book. I decided to do an experiment and teach it kind of the new way. And 
and bring in copies of my manuscripts to show them how much I screwed up at things. Me, a professional writer, to show them my marked up manuscripts and, and really flip the classroom so that instead of me standing in the front, I'm more on the side as a facilitator trying to, not trying to, but really you know, deeply listening to them share with each other and evaluate each other and, and ask questions that kind of unlock that sort of sharing. And it was, it sounds kind of touchy feely, but man, oh man, it really was gratifying and, and a very successful experiment. So, um, you know, it's fun to see our guys bring trophies home, but it's fun also to sort of be, um, you know, to see, to see that kind of evolution. And I've seen it happen with, with a lot of leaders, you know, leadership is sort of basically psychotherapy anyway. Mm. So people getting some, some more self-awareness around that stuff is, um, is, uh, is, is, I just see it as a, a fun, a fun benefit. I guess that's kind of, maybe that's my secret agenda that I'm just trying to be a, be a better, uh, better dad. And I get to do all this research in order to do that. And what I'm also kind of wondering as well is, or also, actually, side note on your on your coaching, how has how do you think that you've kind of developed as you talk about coaching uh, your kids' team? Uh, how is that and the research that you've done kind of developed over the years? And how do you feel that? What do you what would you say to maybe an aspiring coach? Yeah, I think uh, there's a ton of. Um, I guess I'd say a few things. I mean, first, there's a there's is so much great. It's a great moment in coaching because I think, I think, um, on a couple levels, one is that there's just a ton of super, super interesting science. We've always re- regarded coaches as like, um, kind of individuals who tad, who possess some sort of magic that, you know, John Wooden had and Bill Belichick has. And it's not, uh, you know, that's not it. You know what I mean? They're, they're, they're basically, they are, they're people who are incredibly high leverage people. When we think about the most meaningful people in our lives, we often think about coaches. Um, and, and they are employing the same sorts of great, uh, approaches, great approaches to create learning, great approaches to create learning that lasts. Um, and there's a ton of super, super interesting science out now that will help guide them and turn it in from being kind of this voodoo sort of thing into being, it's, it's just like being a good doctor. It's just like being a good surgeon. It's like being a good lawyer. It's like, there's a thing there to explore. Um, and, and on another dimension, the sort of the whole concept of coaching is kind of exploding in life. The idea that everybody needs a coach is increasingly becoming the norm. When I talk to leaders, whether it's Wall Street or Silicon Valley, like a lot of them have no bones, like just saying, oh yeah, that's my talking to my coach the other day. Um, you know, the idea that Tom Brady should have a coach, but you know, people who run giant, you know, companies should not seem silly. So um, that role is kind of, and, and that everyday people, you know, just have somebody to talk to and somebody to run things past and somebody to, um, you know, to, to listen, listen to them. It's an incredibly powerful role. So, um, it's a cool, it's a cool time to be a coach. And I guess the third dimension that it's expanding on is kind of on coaches talking to coaches and learning from each other across domains and within domains. Um, there's a, because of the financial structure around coaching, a lot of coaches tend to be territorial, um, and it ends up because they're trying to protect their juju or their soccer league that they coach or whatever. They don't want, they don't tend to interact with other coaches much. That's a total waste. It's really a tragedy that coaches don't talk to coaches more, um, especially across domains. So I, it's just, a 
you know, the idea of doing an ID exchange, if you are the best soccer coach in your town and there's somebody who's a great um, math coach, SAT coach, or um, a great music instructor, the idea that you, you know, might get together for an hour on a Saturday and chat about what works best for you and about the big challenges you're having, you'd learn a ton from that. So um, that's another way in which this is kind of a cool time to, to, be, to be coaching um, right now. And how do you think a good coach, whether it be a sports coach or a coach for, you know, maybe a CEO of a company, how do you think is what is the best way to go about promoting those principles that you dive deep into in, in culture code of safety, vulnerability, uh, honesty? And how do you how would you implement those without forcing them? Because I feel like a lot of these a lot of those uh places and teams that you visited, whether it be the Spurs or whether it be Zappos or, or whatnot, those, you know, those, the people at the top, the Popoviches, the, I think is Tommy Shea, I believe is his name. Um, they, they clearly see the value in bringing the team together and communicating and sharing those core values of safety and vulnerability, but in places that are struggling how do you go about implementing those values without kind of the awkward icebreakers where people may already be not on the same page? How would you kind of go about doing that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 super interesting. Well, it's it ultimately it comes down, you know, culture change. And I think the question you're asking is about culture change. If you've got kind of a bad or average or mediocre culture, how do you make it better? How do you come in as a leader from as from the outside and, and do that? And it is it is uh, it is not an easy thing. The um, but the first the first thing that you have to establish is safety. I mean, this idea um, that human beings connect. We have we have very ancient wiring that detects uh, behaviors that have have safety cues built into them and we're built to be in or out. We're built to, there's no, there's no payoff in staying in the gray area when it comes to safety. So, um, we have a very powerful and profound response. So building that sense of safety comes absolutely first. Um, and a lot of that is through listening. A nice example of that, um, is with a Navy, uh, commander that, that I wrote about briefly in the culture code, he came upon the ship and the ship was, uh, the worst performing ship in the Navy. And the first thing he did was he took three days. And I think there were like 200 sailors on the boat and he brought them into his office and he asked them three questions. Like what one thing should we not change on this boat? What one thing should we change? And then he asked an open-ended question. What ideas have you got? Give me some ideas. And whenever he heard a good idea that could be easily implemented right now, he would, with the person in his office, speak over the hailer, the loud, the loud hailer, the megaphone, to the whole ship and make that change. Like, as of now, when we tie up in port, we're only using three Laval lines, whatever it was. Mm. And he'd make that change in real time. Within that, you can call it whatever you want. It gets, it gets called by a lot of that kind of behavior. It gets, oh, it's great leadership. Oh, he's so great. And it is. It's definitely all those things. But what it really is is a safety cue. He's saying, I hear you, and I'm not just going to talk. I am behaving this change, and I'm making it happen right now. And so those sorts of safety cues, which all have got the same signal underneath them, which is I see you. We share a future. 
right? I'm invested in our success and in your success. Those signals get sent very, very early on. From that point, once you've built that platform of safety, which takes time, then culture change becomes sort of like an athletic change in that you need to build a new habit. You never make the old habits go away, but you need to, like with any change, you have to define where you want to go. You have to define where you are together. Where are we? Where do we want to go? And then you got to figure out how to get there and start building organizational habits to do that. A lot of those have to do, some of those habits will involve those uncomfortable feelings that you brought up when you say uncomfortable icebreakers. A lot of that, a lot of what makes a good culture is the willingness to be vulnerable together. So a lot of those habits, once you build that habit of safety, then you start building habits of shared vulnerability. And how would, people oh, actually sharing the risk, where people have skin in the game together. And those habits, which can range widely, in the military there's a wonderful habit called an AAR, an after action review, where people circle up and talk about what went wrong, what went right, and what we're gonna do differently next time. And um, those kinds of habits can start building that cohesion and trust. But culture is not some fixed thing. It's not like a broken wall that you go rebuild brick, brick by brick. It's much more like a dance or a series of, of, of more like a language that you're speaking and connecting to each other um, or more like a sport that you play together. It's a living thing where you're sending behavioral signals. Those signals are being heard and they're being behaved back to you. And so it's this cycle of behavior that is really built around we're connected, we're learning together, we're adapting together, and we're being open and vulnerable with each other. And those, those sort of, of cycles um, take a lot of time. You know, they take time to build. Uh, so it, it, ch- culture change is usually measured in years, not in weeks. And how hard would you say it is to change poor culture? Uh, it's incredibly hard. It's really made easier if there's a huge crisis. You know, most of the places that I studied in the book, Pixar, massive crisis right after Toy Story 1 came out. Massive. Navy SEALs, massive crisis back um, during, during the 80s that helped build them into what they are today. The San Antonio Spurs, massive crisis. So that can be extremely helpful um, because it creates clarity and because those crises tend to create the sort of habits of working together. Um, that, uh, that end up becoming kind of the behavioral DNA of the group. Um, so that can be incredibly, incredibly helpful. Do you ever have when you're at Pixar or with Lance Armstrong or one of the, the big people that you're around, do you ever have one of those wow moments? I was just kind of, when I'm, when I'm reading your stuff and you, I mean, you, you know, we'll go into it a little bit after with, with Lance and, you know, you co- you co-write a book with Tyler Hamilton, and you're around a lot of these. Are you with Greg Popovich? Are there any moments where you're like, "Wow, I'm really here. I'm really with one of the most controversial people in the world." You know, they're all smaller in real life. So I got to say, and, and I don't I don't want to diminish um, the you know, the, 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 the wow factor, because there's part of that. You walk into the door at Pixar, you know, you feel special. You see the, you see Popovich coaching the Spurs. It looks special. Um, but it's, it's, you know, up close, everything's small, up close, everything's normal up close. In fact, you know, uh, especially with the way things do kind of get magnified around a guy like a guy like Lance, um, it, it, they, they, they all just – everybody just seems like a, like more human when you're with them than, mm. than you expect and more 
kind of normal dimension than than you expect. And then afterwards, it's like, oh yeah, that was them. Or yeah, that was kind of neat. But you kind of forget it in the moment. Mm. Maybe I'm missing something. But it's it's. Uh, it, I never feel. I feel nervous before I go out there. Um, but when you're there, um, it just it feels weirdly normal. And it actually takes some work. It actually takes some cognitive work to like get back to. Oh yeah, that dumpy little tennis club. That produced more champions than all of us. <laughs> like it's it, it it's dumpiness is all you remember, or like that skinny guy is the greatest athlete ever. Really, you know, or like that old man's a good basketball coach. Just an old man. Um, so it, you actually have to actively work to kind of remind you of of the larger connections in play. Mm. And that's actually a pretty good segue into your book on Lance Armstrong. So for people that don't know, um, Lance Armstrong's War was published in 2005 in which you spend a lot of time with Armstrong, teammates, doctors, everyone. Tell me a little bit about your time with Armstrong and your journey, kind of the first time you meet him. And, you know, I know you you, you, you and your family and your young kids you go to Girona, Spain, small city in Spain, and do you ever, what's your thought process on your way there? You're going there with your family, and you're about to, you know, research Lance Armstrong. What's kind of going through your mind? And then talk to me a little bit about your first experiences meeting him and meeting big, important people within that story. Yeah, no, it was super interesting. At the time, Lance was the biggest uh, name in sports, really, uh, biggest American hero, you know, it's, it's, it's 2004. Um, and this all came from a very kind of right stuff, Tom Wolf, um, conversation that I had with an editor who was like, you know, we'd always have conversations like what's the biggest story nobody's telling right now, or what, who's the biggest guy who everybody knows, but nobody really knows. And that was Lance. Everybody knew his name. Everybody knew his story, his best-selling book. Everybody knew his recovery from cancer. Everybody knew the success he had had. Nobody really understood the sport. Nobody really understood who he was or where he came from or what was motivating him. It was all done kind of at a hazy distance um, in a story that he had narrated that he had controlled very much in a very remote part of the world. So the idea was um, we need to send somebody there and do the big like, hey, this he's our Joe DiMaggio. What's he really like? Um, sort of a story. And there were obviously at the time, I mean – uh, I think the book, you know, begins with uh, talking about the rumors of, uh, of his, his using performance-enhancing drugs. Um, but at the time, um, it was just like, hey, here's a big story to do. I was looking for a big story to do. Uh, we moved to this little town in northern Spain. It's not a big place. And and Lance uh, keeps close track of who is keeping track of him. Mm. He That's one thing you realize really quickly. And there's a certain... You know, he sends out kind of, you know, intimidation signals right away. So there was a time where I think my son Aiden was looking over the bridge and he rode by and said, don't jump. That was one of the first, uh, <laughs> first interactions. He had. And then and then he does a thing that's kind of funny. Um, and he's a playful guy. He's a very smart guy. Mm. And and uh, uh, bikers always put a lot of, I don't know, are you a cyclist, Felix? Not at all. <laughs> So they do a um, they do a thing where in the chamois in the sort of crotch area of their of their shorts they put a lot of sort of grease so that they don't get rashes and right. uh, and so the first time you meet Lance he's getting ready to go for a ride and and he 
is gooing himself up kind of <laughs> quietly. And then he extends his hand to me and then says, great to see you, Dan. And, and I go to shake his hand and he pulls it away. It kind of got you. Like it was all covered in this, in this crotch goo. Mm. Um, but that's, that was, that's the kind of interaction you have. And then when, when he was around, it was like Batman. He was just, you know, sort of coming and going very mysteriously. And his teammates would sort of give him the side eye a lot of times. Cause they, and they would they would be, I got to know a lot of them and they would be sort of openly quasi openly speculating about um, what was going on. He was working with some doctors who were sort of shady. So I painted this portrait in the book of this portrait of light and shadow, like a lot of shadows um, that I couldn't prove. Um, right. I could go pretty far, but I couldn't prove it. And then, you know, five years later, I got a call from Tyler Hamilton, who at the time was, you know, he was a, uh, another cyclist. He had been Lance's right hand man. He was being interviewed by some federal agents, and Tyler knew this all was going to come up. It was all, it, it was all, the whole thing was coming down. And so Tyler and I spent a couple of years um, together, and we traveling to Europe and and doing the deep journalistic dive on on the dark side of those shadows. So it was a, it was kind of a fun combination to be able to explore the world at first from before the story broke, but seeing these rumblings coming and then doing the full into the darkest, dirtiest, strangest, most inspiring and, and just bizarro world of, of the super top ending top, you know, performance enhancing drugs, uh, stuff that was happening in Lance's world. So it was a, it was a fun, a fun couple of books. Yeah. Um, I, I remember even, I think it was, when was his last race? Do you know? The last Tour de France that he did. The last race that Lance did? Yeah. He did, I think he did the 09 Tour, and, and that was it. Um, and that's actually one of the things that if he if he hadn't have come back, um, he probably would have gotten away with it. Did you? But he came back, and that ended up kind of sort of tipping over a domino um, that you know, with, with a, a former teammate of his name, Floyd Landis. Um, if he had treated Floyd better, if he had been like a nicer friend, of course, this was Lance's Achilles heel all along. He wasn't nice to people um, or he couldn't stop being a bully. And uh, and he, he he ticked off the wrong guy and Floyd and Floyd made the whole thing come down. And did you suspect, well, I guess in the beginning or talk to me about from the beginning of when you're with him to kind of the end, your suspicions about, I mean, you know, there's, of course, rumors, there's accusations, there's lawsuits at times. Did yeah. you kind of suspect or think that he was doping? What were your thoughts yeah. on that in the beginning? When friends ask me, they're like, is he on it? And I would say 100% he is. I would say privately to them. I would say, you know, that I can't at the time, that it was impossible to prove that. And at the time, he was aggressively suing the London Sunday Times. He was aggressively suing, I think he had five lawsuits going at one point. Um, I didn't want to get sued. So I could only go as far as, as the as the facts would go. And so, yeah, privately. So people would read the book and they would say, some people who knew cycling would say, oh, my God, I read the book. It's so clear between the lines that I, he's doping. you know." And other people who didn't know cycling would say, oh, I read the book. I'm so glad he's clean. <laughs> and so it was really more a reflection of how well they knew the sport. If you had to do a little psychological analysis on him. What would you say were kind of his main motives for doping? Was it just because he wanted to win? Was it 
money? Was it fame? Was it just because of the cancer story? What it was would you say normal. it was? In, in his motives for doping are the same as every major league ball player who gets caught doping or every NFL player who gets caught doping or every NBA player that gets doping. It's the fear of being left behind. That's why you do it mm. because you see people out there and people do not dope to win. They dope to even the odds. That's the thing people don't understand well, about doping. Well, in their eyes, they, they think they're evening the field. That's exactly – well, and they in, in many cases, they in fact are. Yeah, well, especially uh, on the Tour de France. You're getting – they're riding away from you. So you, are you in or are you out? And, and the, but Lance's difference is that he has that sort of extra layer of motivation that comes from never knowing his dad, feeling abandoned, um, and, and constantly having a, you know, a Texas-sized chip on his shoulder. Um, and, and him being kind of wedded to his narrative as I am I'm the greatest. And, and that is – I think what led him to kind of, and the other thing was the cancer thing, the idea that his fall, his greatness was helping cancer patients, so his fall would hurt them. So he could kind of, um, and there's a lot of interesting psychology behind this that, that often resembles what we see in some politicians, that they will lie and cheat if they feel like it's helping a noble cause. So that's that's where he was. He was, he was sort of a if you had to create a perfect sort of psychological petri dish to create someone who would kind of, you know, lie like crazy, but everybody who doped lie. The difference was in his willingness to crush, attack and crush people who accused him. Mm. A lot of other people doped, but they would just kind of deny quietly and not try to attack. But Lance tried to crush anyone and he, and he used all the weapons at his disposal, which was his fame um, all of his money. So it was that overreaction, I think, that made him unique um, and that, that has prevented him from thus far um, kind of you, – you look at the world now. You know, Alex Rodriguez, convicted doper. He's on TV every night. Right. You know, um, you look at a lot we're, – we're willing, we're perfectly willing. Tiger Woods, um, he wasn't, it wasn't a doping thing, but it was a similar sort of fall from grace. Now he's back. Um, but that's not the case with with Lance. I think he's come back as slower um, because his sin was was kind of the sin of of being a being a jerk and being a bully and being relentless. Um, all of those qualities really helped him win bike races. All those qualities are really hurting him um, in life. And what was your relationship like with him while you were working and kind of how it? throughout time developed like in the beginning and how much time did you have as well one-on-one just with him and what was he like behind closed doors with no cameras around oh he's the same i mean you know he's always the camera's always around in his in his mind in a way i mean to call it a relationship would not quite be right because you know it's a it's more of a it's he's so keenly aware and he's so good at narrative and he's so smart um I, I think it was always like super careful, you know, around never natural. Um, and I don't know if there is ever a natural. There's a good movie called The Armstrong Alive by a guy named Alex Gibney that gets into some of this stuff that captures him being that way. Um, <clears throat> but um, yeah, no, there were there were like two long solo interviews. There was a lot of like you know a fair amount of like just sort of in the same space time observing. But the best best observation you can make as a journalist, I mean. What I learned a while ago is 
okay, I can go hang out with you for an hour, Felix. That's, that's, I would learn something. Um, but you know, what would be better would be for me to spend two hours on the phone each with your best friend, <laughs> with your coworker, with your mom, right. with your teacher. Um, if I, if I can spend an hour on the phone with everybody who knows you well, I'm going to get a much more complete picture. And that's what I did with Lance. I mean, when you're with him, you're not getting the real thing there. If there is any real thing to get, um, you're, you're getting a performance for a journalist. Uh, and, and so I, I didn't find those to be super useful, but the, the people who are like, yeah, I've been riding with Lance on his team for 10 years that, oh, all right, let's talk. What's he like? You know, and then, and then you'll get something. And what would you say if you had to maybe the biggest misconception about him? Um, I don't know. Um, I used to say, people would ask me that question when I wrote the book in 2005. And I would say back then, I would say the biggest conception misconception is that he's a nice guy. That was the misconception back then. Um, that he, because of the cancer work, which was incredible. I mean, there's no doubt it's a, he made the world a better place for cancer patients and he changed the narrative on cancer in some very empowering ways, I think, um, that continue to help people. So I don't mean to diminish that. Uh, but yeah, the, but there was this narrative that he was kind of Huck Finn, you know, the American who's going to go put his thumb in the eye of the, of the French and, and just be a, be a, you know, just a great, great guy. And, you know, that's, that's actually, that's not, that's not who he is. Um, now, I don't know if there's a misconception about him now. Um, I think, you know, I think people are still, it's still, people still want to have the conversation. I still, still see people with, I saw somebody with a wristband the other day, like he, he had an, he had an impact. So it's a really, to me, it's a really interesting conversation to have about like, is it a better place now? Um, or is the sense of betrayal and cynicism that his fall created that, Oh, they're all doping. You know, it's all a bunch of baloney. Um, is that, is, is that, that price too great to bear? And do you genuinely, or do you think he's learned from everything that's happened? What do you imagine? Or do you know anybody maybe close to him on, because for a while I remember, I mean, I was younger, but I remember he wasn't very vocal and then he went on Oprah, I think. And that's when they had the whole sit down, do you think somebody like that, especially him, who's, you know, as you said, a very smart guy, do you think they learn and how does, how does he kind of progress with life? Yeah, I don't know. That's a good therapeutic question. I mean, I think he's, uh, I think he is, he's doing a podcast and, um, uh, you know, he's, he gave an interview, I think it was a couple of years ago now where somebody's like, would you do it over again? And he's like, yep, I would, you know, given those same choices, it's like, and, and there's kind of a weird, admirable honesty to that response because the choice he was given were horrible, Yeah, you know? And I mean, the choice of like, do you want to dope or do you want to go home? You know, and the idea and the people who get away scot-free in this, in this whole conversation are the people who are supposed to be the referees for the sport, you know, the people who are supposed to govern it. Um, and in uh, certain institutions in life and, and certainly in European cycling, they just, they just completely created, uh, their, their, their negligence created a complete and incredibly cynical free for all. Um, and to a certain extent, I think that may be happening under our noses in other, in other sports that the drug testing in some sports is kind of a joke. Uh, 
I think in the NBA, you get four tests, but after that, if they get your four tests, they cannot test you again. So if you've had your four tests and it's the playoffs, which it is right now, um, what would a smart person do? Right. What would a smart, ambitious person do? And that's what people don't understand. I mean, one of the, you know, I think one of the fundamental things here is like, we would all do it if we were in that same situation. It's not like, I mean, there's some people who may be able to say no for a few days or for a few months or for a few years. But ultimately, what those things show is that when when you're in a situation where everyone's cheating, if you're trying to make this podcast work and you knew that the people in the top 10 podcasts all were taking this little blue pill that made them smarter and funnier and boosted their ratings by 50%, like how long could you say no to that if it had no other side effects, if there was no way of them testing you, right? Right. So it's, it's, it's not that you're a weak person. It's not that I'm a weak person. It's just, that's the way we're built to, into those, to respond to those situations where we feel like we're being treated unfairly. We respond. So, um, so I think, you know, he takes, he's the one I think who died for the sins of, um, Jesus. Now I'm using a Jesus, <laughs> but he, but it's really, he did not create, he did not create that world. He, he ruthlessly, optimized that world for himself. Um, but he did not create that world. And it's really interesting to ask like, where else is that world being created either on wall street or in Silicon Valley or in the sports world? But do you think that makes him a bad person necessarily? I mean, I know afterwards, you know, he was ruthless in his defense, but granted, you know, if everybody's doing it and I guess on a moral level, it's, I guess it's fine and you're okay with it. And then you become arguably probably the biggest athlete in the world, naturally you're going to, and and you're getting sued and there's the media's bashing you, then I think you naturally become ruthless. Would you, do you believe he's a bad person for what he did? I would. I mean, I, this, because the stuff was so over the top. You know, where you're suing your masseuse who doesn't have any money mm. and you're kind of ruining her life. You know, he was ruining people's lives and he had no... No hesitation. That was the bit that was weird. And I think most Americans still say that's weird. You know, it's one thing to say to protest your innocence. It's another to like attack uh, with all the legal and financial leverage that you've got. And so that I would say that he behaved like a bad person in that situation. And I would say that um, he may well uh, and I think he has to to his credit. I think he's rebuilt relationships with some of these people that he attacked, not with all of them, but with some of them. Um, and so, yeah. So is he a bad person? I don't know. I want to shy away from being like good or bad yeah. or whatever. He certainly was not mature enough to make a good decision back then. And he seems to be showing signs of maturity now. So, but I would hesitate to sort of label him good or bad. And it's kind of a separate question, but something that I've thought about a while since I've followed the Tour de France and I've seen them because I'm, I'm half French. So I go to, I'm in, I'm in France all summer. And so that's basically the biggest thing on TV for a month. I don't know. I, I'm of the belief that the Tour de France and I, I kind of want your take on this. Maybe the Tour de France, since we all know that virtually everybody at the top and who does the best historically has been, either proven or likely was doping. What do you think about potentially making it shorter and a little bit more realistic? Because the reality is, 
even if these are the highest performing athletes in the world, I mean, biking hundreds of miles, days at a time, days in a row is kind of physically, virtually impossible to do clean and be at the highest, at the top of the the race. Yeah. So no, what, do you, would, would you think that, or is there any of that conversation that you know of in the cycling world of, hey, maybe this is, this race is just impossible? Yeah, I've been I've been uh, kind of distant from that world for the last few years, but that is a conversation that I've heard brought up, and it makes total sense. It's like why, you know, it, it is it is by far the hardest the hardest event. You're you're basically you know doing the equivalent of running a marathon every day for a month, and and that's that's really or for 21 days. That's really 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 hard. And is there a way to make it a little more human? And and I think that'd be a great first step. And now I kind of want to transition into your second or the secret race with they co-authored with Tyler Hamilton. So for people who don't know, Tyler Hamilton is or was uh, Lance Armstrong's right-hand man and teammate. And just also to mention this book won William Hill sports book of the year in 2012. So congratulations for that. Um, And so how did this book kind of come about? Because you first write this book in 2005 with Lance Armstrong or, you know, kind of shadowing about Lance Armstrong and then what's your relationship with Tyler Hamilton and how does that kind of come to fruition and then kind of develop into this book and walk me through the process of writing it and listening and corroborating interviews and all of that stuff yeah it was it was a it was I wasn't planning on getting back in the cycling world and just got a Got an email from Tyler one time, and uh, he wanted to chat, and so we chatted. He wanted to chat on Skype, so it was kind of private. Uh, it's been in 2010, 29, 2009, and um, you know he had just been interviewed by a federal agent. And he knew that the jig was up, uh, and that all of this was going to come crashing down on cycling and on Lance in particular. And he wanted to uh, share his story. He wanted to be in be in control of his narrative, and so we had kind of you know, a few long talks and. We set on some ground rules early on, um, you know, one being that I get to independently confirm everything um, that we kind of write in sort of, I'll, I would write the book, but I would have kind of, you know, control over the factual parts of it um, so that I wasn't just, you know, sort of writing down whatever he said, but everything would be sort of confirmed by independent sources. Um, and so we set out to do it uh, and it was really appealing to me as an opportunity to get back into that world. And and, and to tell the, the full story of a world that I dimly in a sense was there. And that, um, you know, at the time, you know, everybody was still at this moment, everybody's still believing Lance. I mean, if you polled Americans, I don't know, it'd be, it would have been a ridiculous majority of people who would say, nope, Lance is clean. He's our hero. Um, and so we set about in a multi-month uh, process of kind of, you know, these conversations, um, deep conversations, which, you know, we went on for hours and hours and hours on Skype, uh, trips to Europe where we'd go revisit sites where things happened, go into the hotel room and he'd show me where they would take the picture off the wall and hang the blood bag on the wall, the exact hotel room where he did it, where he could remember. He had a good memory, so he could remember, like, this was the room, the beds were here, Um you know, at the time I wanted to make sure that he was telling me the truth too. And so, uh, and then a lot of interviews with other writers and, and sort of replaying that whole era and all of it was, it was as a reporter, it was what she sort of dream about the idea that you would have access, privileged access to a, a secret world underneath the world that people already know. 
And people already knew those races and people already knew who won those races. And now with Tyler, you're saying, oh, no, no, let's watch that again. It's like the best 30 for 30 ever. Like (laughs) right behind the scene, right before they went on and won that race, he took a bag of blood and he took this picture of Mona Lisa off the wall and he hung a blood bag there. And and they all – and then when you get a bag of blood, it's often right out of the freezer. So it makes you really cold for a while. I mean, these amazing details of what it's like to feel blood going. And, of course, that's hugely illegal to give yourself blood right before a race. It makes you way faster. It's extra oxygen. Um, and, uh, and so those, those incredible details of where they were, they would have a, a secret guy on a motorcycle delivering um, drugs to the, to the van um, with – all the code words and all the this and all that. It was, it was you know, just like a spy movie and, and happening underneath the noses of, you know, the cycling authorities who pretty much could have cared less. Um, but under the noses of Nike and under the noses of ESPN and under the noses of Sports Illustrated and the American public who's staring at these events. Um, so, you know, it took, it took a year and a half to, to research and write, and then we came out right when um, the, the USADA Anti-Drug Association's report came out. Um, and so our, our timing was, was, was good um, in, that, in that we were people were just sort of saying, oh, my God, this report is ridiculous. And we came out with the book that said, well, you don't know half of it. So we were able to deliver the, the, the full story um, of, of what really went down. And Tyler is a... He's a heartfelt guy. Um, you know, he's, he's a, a great uh, communicator and um, and just couldn't have been more invested in in telling the story right. He really saw, you know, unlike Lance, I think he felt genuine remorse at having to join this world and genuine remorse for all the pain he had caused and um, and wanted to use this book to kind of tip the scales. And it was cool to see, as he put it, the day the book came out, it was as if he'd been carrying around a, an 80 pound backpack full of rocks and he was able to take off the backpack. That was what he said on that day. And it's like, that it was, that was cool to be able to see that happen and be a part of that. And what's your relationship with Tyler now and how, how is that, how did writing a book with him kind of, you know, bring you guys together? It's hard to write a book with somebody. I mean, you know, but, uh, you know, we, we had some bumps in the road, but I'd say, you know, now he came up to Alaska and visited us there over the summer one time, brought a, brought his wife at the time up. Um, so I was, it's very cordial. Um, he's a, I have nothing but respect and admiration for him and everything he's been through. And, you know, he continues to give back. He does a charity ride, a couple charity rides every year, um, for, um, muscular sclerosis and some other causes. And so, you know, nothing but admiration for, uh, for Tyler and everything he's been through. Incredibly tough guy, incredibly warm guy. And do you know what his relationship with Lance, does he still have a relation, a relationship with Lance now? And how did, when, you know, all the USADA findings and the lawsuits kind of come together, how did that, did they still talk during the time that you're with him? Did they talk at all? No, they had no relationship when he started to write the book. I mean, you know, he was, Lance has, you know, you're either in or you're out and Tyler was out a long time ago because he was a rival. Um, after he left the team, he became a rival. So no, Lance actually kind of sort of verbally accosted Tyler at a, at a restaurant in Aspen, you know, shortly right before the book came out. So he knew, he knew Lance was going after everybody at that time. And was there any, 
was there any communication between you and Lance but between when you wrote the book on him and then when you then released this book that kind of yep. Yeah, yeah, he called one day and, and wanted to chat and um, and wanted to. He was kind of trying to, I don't know. He's just kind of exploring. Um, you know, Lance is always looking for a way forward. Actually, that's the name of his new podcast. I think it's called mm. Forward. Um, and so he's looking for a new narrative or looking for something to exploit, um, something to, some way to move forward. And uh, I think he's kind of found it with the podcast. And so now I kind of want to take another route with um, your role as special advisor to the Cleveland Indians that began in 2014, is that correct? Uh, 2013. 2013. And so how did that kind of come together? And when you got that call, what was going through your mind? Oh, they had, they had, they had read my um, book, The Talent Code, and some of their coaches had used some of it with the players and found that it had been successful and had produced some results. And so... Um, I saw that I lived part of the year in Cleveland. Uh, we had lunch, and I was invited to present to the team and I presented to the coaches. And just kind of one thing led to another, you know. And, and baseball is a very traditional sport, and I represented a or am kind of a bridge to a lot of different domains. And everything interesting, my theory is, everything interesting happens at the intersection of domains. You don't want to be fully in one or the other. And if you're so, the idea that baseball, which is very, very traditional. You know, basically, Cleveland Indians are a baseball school. So they can learn from the worlds of education. They can learn from the worlds of science. They can learn from other sports. They can learn from the military. And I've got, you know, I, I, I like to, I really get a lot of joy out of connecting them to those different worlds. And they're an organization that's filled with great learners and great leaders. And so um, it's fun to be, been really fun to be a part of that. And what, how's the culture changed since when you got there in 2013 to now? Not hugely. It's been, I think it's become more sort of self-aware. It's gotten bigger and that brings its own challenges. It's, um, you know, they were a pretty successful team, won the most games in the American League in the last six years and have spent $400 million less than the Red Sox or the Yankees. So we're sort of adding up to more, um, which is the goal always. Uh, So it's been, the challenges have been that, you know, baseball, like so many other businesses, is a learning contest. And there are, there are a lot of, there's, there's a lot of competition there's a lot of speed with which the evolution is happening, especially with technology. So it is, um, you know, there's areas in which we've sort of tried to stay ahead. There's areas where maybe we've fallen behind a little bit. Um, but the main cha- the way the culture has changed, it has just gotten bigger. And it's, and, it's, and it's what's easy to kind of have when you've got 25 people under one roof seeing each other every day becomes harder when you've got, you know, 50 people on our roof and then, and then a bunch of different teams all around the, all around the Midwest, uh, farm teams. So, um, kind of those, those are good challenges to have. So what is it exactly that you do on a daily basis with the Indians or do you work with them on a daily basis or is it every so often or how's that work? Yeah, going once a week, uh, on the average, I'll go down for spring training for big chunks of time. Um, when, which is a rare time because everyone's together under one roof, all the teams and all the coaches, um, it started out mostly focused on the practice space. How do we make a better, how do we get more out of an hour of practice? Um, it has now moved into the space of coaching. Like how do we, how do we coach smarter and how do we develop coaches? How do we develop coaches better? And then it's shifted into the space of like, how do we develop people better? Um, how do we help people learn and, and get a little bit better every day? Um, and then, you know, also how do we just continue to build the culture? So it's a variety of conversations with a variety of people on a, on a bunch of different levels. 
And how would you describe the, if you had to describe the kind of culture within, I guess, the Cleveland Indians, how would you describe it? I'd say it's, it's uh, very caring, uh, very high candor, um, very caring, very warm, um, very uh, innovative. If we do things like the Yankees, we're going to lose. Like we have to have to be, you know, on the edge of things and, and, and learning a little bit faster than everybody else. Um, and I would say uh, it is, I guess, care. If I had one word, it would be care. Uh, and, and that, and that, to me, is the really unique thing, especially in sports, when you have people who you know deeply are invested in each other and and care care a lot about each other and and that's what you know um, the manager Terry Francona delivers to the players that's what the front office delivers to to Terry Francona and the rest of the players and that's kind of the feeling um, you know the feeling of excitement that you have there it isn't like happy 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 all the time it's like the feeling of, of fulfillment you get when you're solving hard problems with people you admire. And there's a lot of very admirable people, and uh, and those people care about each other a lot. So it's um, yeah, so it's just fun. And what's your relationship? Do you have personal relationships with the players as well? With a couple, a few. Um, it more it used to be a little bit more, but um, there's a couple guys I might grab a grab a dinner with occasionally. Um, less so as time goes on as my as my interactions moved further from the playing field but it is really that to me that's the as a, i guess as a journalist and a person I, i'm 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 interested in that because ultimately all the you can have the smartest front office people in the world and the best analytics in the world but unless you can make that transfer onto the field you're not going to be successful and really understanding the unique pressures the unique psychology the unique physiologic demands like what it's like to kind of be in the shoes of a player is a pretty unique it's a pretty unique spot so um i find those interactions being helpful just to help build empathy and you kind of mentioned earlier how you guys have won more games uh, in the past six years than your arch rivals while spending 400 million dollars less what would you if you had to maybe give a couple reasons on the reason on on why that is what would you say um, it's all, it's, 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 there's a, there's a million little things that add up to more, but I would say overall we get more out of people and more out of players. How, um, do, you, how do you get more out of a person or a player? Well, the way to get more out of personal players is you don't set ceilings on them. You, you humbly realize you don't know what they can become, whether that's an intern or whether that's a shortstop who's five foot seven and 130 pounds. So you don't know. It used to be there was great satisfaction and, and um, the culture was built around defining what people could be, where you would say, okay, let's draft that guy. I, he's, he might be an everyday player. He probably won't be. And you'd, you'd spend a lot of time and energy on what he cannot do. You'd mm-hmm. spend a lot of time defining what he can't do. And now we've kind of flipped that to say, we don't really know. I mean, we don't really know. What we can do is try to identify people's strengths and give them processes and systems and habits to grow them. And that we can, we don't know it yet. It's a growth thing. So you don't know what's, what a little seedling that could grow into a huge oak and, and just sort of trusting that and, and, and being very focused on, on including and selecting people who've, who are, who've, sh- who've shown a clear growth mindset. So if they don't have a growth mindset, they can you know have all the talent in the world, but, um, if they can bring that growth mindset to the right situations and, and really embrace the work. We had a guy throw a shutout last night 
His name is Shane Bieber. Mm. He wasn't even a pitcher until his sophomore year of college. He almost didn't even try out for the team. Wow. Um, and now uh, he's he had 15 strikeouts in a shutout last night. So uh, he didn't know that he could do that. We certainly didn't know. We drafted him in the fourth round. Um, you know, we didn't know he could become that, uh, but he did. So it's like in sports, there's this, this strong urge to be like, I see it. I see exactly yeah. what he's going to become. And this urge to certainty. And what's um, and it's very satisfying to to explore that. It's very satisfying to say, oh, yeah, that guy's going to be good. Oh, yeah, that guy's not going to be good. But the truth is you have no idea. Um, you have some idea, but you've got to not focus on limitations, just focus on growth. And how involved are you with the kind of drafting process or the signing, trading, releasing players? Not very at all. Not very at all. No, just more about the growth, the growth part once they get in. And what's your favorite part or if, if you could pinpoint one of the most influential experiences on you from your time working as a special advisor? Oh, I don't know. There's a lot. And we went skydiving with some of the coaches this, this, uh, this past spring training. That was pretty fun. Um, pretty influential, I guess, you know, going to the world series, which was really incredible. Um, to sort of see that, see the whole world pivot and pay attention to those moments and to see our team play really, really well under the spotlight. So, um, no, just sort of having it be part of life is, uh, is, is, is really, really uh, fulfilling. And what other aspects of maybe the culture or in your role with them that you tried, that you are looking towards the future on improving and bettering? Yeah, I think the, um, I think we could probably just getting better at having a clear set of shared priorities. You know, there's, there's, it's such a complicated business and you've got all these games to play. Um, and you've got so many dimensions to it. You've got strength and conditioning and you've got psychology and you've got just the sheer logistics of, of getting a baseball game out there. And you've got the practice piece and you've got longer term development and, and you've got all the technology that's coming into the game. So having a clear organizational windshield that gives us like a clear sense of what, of all the things we could work at, um, you know, there's a lot of different ways we could spend our time. What are the three most important ones we should focus on? That kind of making sense of that complexity and, and turning it into kind of a shared dashboard would be really, um, I think, a powerful improvement. And if you had to give advice for, I think I mentioned to you, uh, actually, I think while we were emailing, that I w- my, one of my dreams is to one day work as an executive in professional sports. If you had to give me a piece of advice on how to do so, what would you say? Um, it's a good question. I mean, it's, it's evolving fast and there's tons of really smart people that want to get in there. You know, there's like 400 people that apply to be interns at at the Indians. Um, and a lot of them are like crazy experienced and crazy smart. Um, and so I would just look for something, look to cultivate something that is a separator for you. Um, that might be, this sounds like a really obvious thing, but learning Spanish, like <laughs> half the people, um, in the game speak Spanish. Uh, and the idea that you, that should be kind of standard for everybody is low hanging fruit. I think, um, I think there's a ton of energy going into, you know, obviously the analytics thing that there's, that's, I don't want to say it's over, but man, there's a lot of smart people working on that already. And, and, you know, it's not as super interesting. I think the area in which there might be more 
um, kind of value is, is in kind of, this is my bias, but I think it's kind of in the learning area. How do you get more out of that Tuesday hour of practice? Um, I don't think there's many people looking at that. And I, I think that's, um, you know, there's a lot of kind of legacy behaviors and traditional ways of doing things that could easily be improved. Um, so yeah, finding, you know, finding ways to sort of separate yourself, um, in terms of building an expertise. And I would say, you know, multi-domain expertise is, would be important. You know, all the, like I said before, all the interesting stuff happens at the intersections of domains. So the guy who works for the Astros, Sig Mejdal, is, um, I think he's head of decision sciences. He used to work at NASA. And the idea that he can bring all of his mental models for problem solving, all of his mental models for system building, which is what baseball is, right. um, and map them on to, to sport, I think is incredibly powerful. So um, deep domain in a parallel, deep expertise in a parallel domain um, would, be, would be something that I think would be valuable. And I guess kind of to wrap things up, where do you see your, what's next for you? Yeah, I've got a couple books to write. I've got a um, uh, one of them will be a follow up to the culture book. Another one will be a, um, sort of another big idea book. I'm not sure exactly on what it'll be on yet. And um, yeah, just just kind of you know being with the family and and doing stuff with the Indians and um, just to continue to explore uh, what the next big mystery is. Beautiful. Hey, Daniel, thank you so much for taking the time. It was a pleasure to have you on the show. And for people who would like and should uh, get Mr. Daniel Coyle's books, you can find them all on virtually every, every platform. Amazon, Barnes & Nobles. I personally was listening to The Culture Code via audiobook. There's also The Secret Race via audiobook. So, Daniel, thank you again so much for taking the time, and I'll talk to you soon, hopefully. Hey, it was a blast, Felix. Hope we get to meet in person sometimes. Thanks for your great work. Thanks. Your great questions. You're a very good question asker. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Hey, you bet.